Weekly Skeptic episode 14. I'm Nick Dixon and I'm joined as ever by libertarian centrist Mr. Toby Young. Coming up on the show today, Kanye loves Hitler, Elon Musk exposes big tech censorship and England is lost forever, though not the football team. Plus, of course, our weekly news roundup and the splendor that is peak woke. But first, Toby, I was going to force you to talk about a topic you didn't really want to talk about, which is yay formerly known as Kanye West, went on the Alex Jones show, InfoWars, and he said he loved Hitler, he loves Nazis, and uh, Alex Jones was a sort of friendly, moderate figure trying to tone him down, saying, uh, well, you know, you don't really mean that you love Hitler. He's like, no, no, I do. It was all a bit mad. And um, you don't really follow this stuff as much as me. I follow it because I'm a sort of Louis Theroux, a sort of right-wing Louis Theroux who's follows all this, but with far more sympathy than Louis Theroux would do. I'm sort of like, a, you know, I, I went out to Nick Fuentes' home. He expressed some pretty crazy views, and I agreed with almost all of them. <laughs> I just, I think that'd be funny, I write with Louis Theroux. But what was your take on it? Well, uh, you, you maybe can throw some light on something for me. You know that Louis Theroux rap, which kind of went viral, and you see it a lot on Instagram. People, like, dance to him going, wiggle, wiggle. Yeah. Did he make that up, or, or was he just quoting a song he could actually remember? I, I think he qu- quoted it. I, I, I actually don't know, Toby, but what, he, I, what I think that's from is he was probably saying it in one of his documentaries as a, you know, a, a sort of being ironic, trying to do a rap, someone else's rap, and then it just got taken and put on loads of videos, right? That's, that's yeah, it. no, I think, I think it was on like yeah, Graham Norton or something. He was asked if he knew any rap lyrics, and I think he came up with that. And I just, I haven't gone back and watched the clip, so I'm not sure whether he w- made it up or whether he was right. just quoting it. But I think he was probably just quoting it. You should it. do it that, a, important a research. Yeah, probably should. Um, Yeah, so I'm slightly losing interest in Kanye's shenanigans. And I sort of, you know, um, sympathize. Was it Ben Shapiro who said that um, it's actually cruel? It's kind of a form of bear baiting almost to kind of, you know, have him on these shows. I mean, it's a little bit hypocritical, isn't it? You have him on your show. He then says something completely outrageous and career destroying. And then you try and sort of coax him into saying something to moderate it a little bit, you know, to row back a bit, because that's just going to destroy your career. But then if you really, you know, if you have any sympathy for him and you don't want him to implode, surely don't have him on the show. Encourage him to go to a sanatorium, you know, for six months uh, so he can get well again. It just seems like you have to at some point, if you're if you're an interviewer or a host or a podcaster, to take some responsibility. Then you can't just have these people on your show because you know they're going to say something inflammatory and it's going to be good for your ratings, even though it's going to completely destroy their career. I don't know. I, think, I feel like we should look away now. It's sort of unseemly and unethical to continue to encourage Kanye or pay attention to these ridiculous things that he's saying, which are clearly going to make it impossible for him to earn a living in the future. Well, it's one view. I, my problem with that view is that it's, it's, it's what's called concern trolling. When you say, oh, I'm worried he's mentally ill. And this is what happened to Andrew Lawrence when he said a very moderate thing you know, in the UK comedy scene that maybe maybe we don't all have to be ultra left wing and maybe diversity quotas are are flawed. And everyone's like, I think he must be mentally ill. (laughs) Like, no, he just had a different opinion. Obviously, yeah, he's far more extreme in his views, so I can see your point. But my concern is it's a way to sort of shut someone down while pretending you're slightly nicer than just cancelling them. But here's a theory for you. Scott Adams had a theory that yeah, he's just trying to break the system. He can't win in the system. But all he can do is sort of break the whole system by kind of saying the most outrageous things and kind of shifting the paradigm of free speech or political discourse or something like that. What win, though, in what sense? You mean not win the presidential election in 2024? I mean, he's been winning in other ways up until now, hasn't he? 
Yeah, I suppose he meant winning literally that, but also in the political sphere, the political game or something like that. And there was another theory. I mean, he's just been on Gavin McInnes' show, but this is paywalled, so I haven't been able to watch it, but I watched a clip. And Gavin McInnes posited that maybe it's a kind of art performance, like he's an artist, we know this, he, he's a musician, then he's a designer. Now maybe he's doing art in politics, a kind of punk, punkish art. What do you think to that? That sounds... That sounds like a pretty weak defence. I mean, <laughs> you it, think he just doesn't like Jews and I, is saying it a lot? I, I think yeah, well, I, no, I, I, I don't think it's performance art, and I don't think it's kind of performative vice signalling either. I think he just has gone a bit loopy. It's though he's become completely disinhibited, and any kind of editorial filter has gone in his head, and he's just saying whatever he thinks is going to outrage people and is going to attract attention without really thinking about the repercussions long term. Um, maybe he's in some kind of self-destructive death spiral. I don't know, but it's just you know, he, he. I mean, I prefer to think that he he doesn't actually believe these things. But maybe you're right. Maybe I'm just being condescending and patronising because I don't want to engage with his argument that Hitler was actually had some positive qualities and we should reevaluate him as a historical figure. I mean, well, on that note, can I make another provocative point? What about this? Do you remember 2008 when Diane Abbott went on This Week, uh, which was actually quite a good show, so the BBC got rid of it, and she said that Mao on balance did more good than harm. Yes. My, my claim there is Abbott is a far more extreme figure than Ye. I'll tell you why. Three reasons, really. One, Mao killed more in pure death toll. Two, she's doing it on BBC One, not a fringe show like Infowars, which has a lot of viewers, but is obviously a wacky show. And three... Whereas Ye is saying Hitler did some good things, all right, distasteful, but Abbott is saying Mao did more good than half, so not just some good things, actually was a good guy overall. Isn't that actually a more extreme statement? Well, it is, but I don't think that, that that's not an argument for saying, well, if, if we're not going to cancel Diane Abbott for praising the 20th century's greatest genocidal murderer, then why should we cancel ye for praising hitler i mean surely she should have lost the labor party whip and been deselected as a consequence of saying that but of course she was just echoing her then leader's views um it, it was like it really annoyed me when ash Sarka said kind of irritably to i think it was piers morgan um i'm a literal communist it's like if if you know if 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 um if 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 ye had said in response to some aggressive questioning by Piers Morgan about praising Hitler. You don't understand, Piers. I'm a literal Nazi. You, know, you would expect him to be <laughs> even more cancelled at that point. But she she garnered nothing but praise for it. Well done. You're a bold, yeah. outspoken young woman. Well done for standing up to Piers and putting him back in his box. It was like yeah. you're literally endorsing a genocidal ideology that yeah. has been responsible for more deaths more murders in the 20th century than any other ideology i mean yeah. quite extraordinary that yeah that's, that, that's the double standard I, I want to starve five million kulaks that's what i believe <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> mental you're absolutely right it is mad I, i'm not saying it necessarily justifies it. it's just an interesting point yeah i mean yay might just be doing the fairly standard nation of islam kind of lewis farrakhan they, they don't like jews they don't like white people although he seems to not mind white people but a lot of uh, singers and rappers have done this in america you know uh, uh, michael jackson had uh, some dodgy lyrics about jewish people um, Ice Cube said some similar things in the past. It could just be that. Uh, but I just want to say briefly as well, they sacked Milo Yiannopoulos, or Ye sacked him. Milo put out a statement suggesting it was mutual, but it, people are saying it isn't. Basically, apparently Milo tried to get Nick Fuentes sacked, but instead got sacked himself. 
I have bad to be to get sacked from the yay campaign. It's like not extreme enough, to, <laughs> too extreme. I don't know. But um, yeah, he got sacked. If anyone's in, but maybe this is too sort of nerdy and online, and maybe you don't like or any of these people and think what we're on about. But I will just say one last thing on it, which because it links to our next topic as well, which is he did get suspended, yay, from Twitter for that yeah. symbol. Now people tried to tell me well it was actually an ancient symbol, and what it was was like a, apparently it was like a swastika inside a star of David, obviously offensive to many or to everyone really but but then people said well no it's not because it's an ancient symbol and he's just, but he's obviously put it out there to presumably to sort of test the boundaries as a kind of trolling and then musk booted him off twitter but the problem is or he suspended him at least but the problem is musk used the argument that it was incitement i suppose to get around his rules about free speech where he's tried to follow the law and of course incitement to violence is not allowed even in the american first amendment so that's how he's getting around it. But the problem is, is, is that symbol actually incitement to violence? I don't really see how it is. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought that the Supreme Court, and that, that sounds like a, a disingenuous defence on Musk's part, because the Supreme Court have allowed Nazis to march through Jewish neighbourhoods brandishing actual swastikas. You know, they've upheld the First Amendment rights of literal Nazis to um, march through Jewish neighborhoods with swastikas. So the swastika um, isn't a breach of the First Amendment, just displaying a swastika. And I don't see how you could, I mean, the First Amendment standard is that um, speech should be permitted unless it's going to lead to, I think, imminent lawless action um, uh, or something along those lines. And I I don't think that, I can't see how Kanye tweeting that image would lead to imminent lawless action right um yeah well it's been quite um tough playing the sort of devil's advocate in this section but i, I think i've I think we've given a balanced argument i just suddenly remembered at the last minute this bizarre thing that ea said about elon musk i just thought we should i should just quickly try and bring this up did you see when he claimed that he was a half chinese clone oh, I, missed that. Oh. <laughs> I mean i've been making all these rational arguments I so he put, he put on his instagram yeah, he put, am I the only one who thinks Elon could be half Chinese? Have you ever seen his pics as a child? Take a Chinese genius and mate them with a South African supermodel and we have an Elon. I say an Elon because they probably made 10 to 30 Elons and he's the first genetic hybrid that stuck. Well, let's not forget about Obama. And then he says some other strange stuff. So this is a bit like um, <laughs> me doing my podcast with James Tellingpole. I- I'm never quite sure whether when he says something, uh, you know, uh, particularly outrageous, whether he believes it or whether he's just trolling me. Uh, you know, like when he said that he thought dinosaurs were a hoax. Um, I couldn't work out whether he was sort of, um, you know, engaging in self-parody um, or whether he actually meant it. I think he actually did mean it. But in, do you think that? Do you think that? Yeah, Nick Fuentes believes that as well. Carry on. <laughs> do you think that Ye actually believes that? that um, Elon Musk is, is half Chinese. It's hard to know. It must said, I take it as a compliment on Twitter in reply to someone else, because obviously Ye suspended. And Ye then came back onto his Instagram and said it was meant as a compliment, Elon. So it was a compliment that he's okay. a half Chinese clone hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> and there's 10 to 30 attempts at it. Um, so anyway, a bit of fun. I wanted to do that section. I think it was worth doing. But we can now seamlessly segue to a section I'm calling Birdwatch, which I wanted to call Birdwatch last week, but Toby was in such a rush, I forgot. And this is where we look at Twitter every week, because we're looking at it so much, I've given it its own section. Birdwatch, we should, are we going to have a sting for, for, for yeah. the, introducing the Birdwatch section? A kind of sort of sting. Yeah, some sort of what, bird sound. What, 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 Put bird, that in, Jason. What, what bird sound would you associate with Elon Musk? 
It's a good question. A half Chinese hybrid bird of some, <laughs> of some <laughs> um, Yeah, a brilliant producer, Jason, can hopefully do that. Um, we don't shout Jason out enough, so shout out to Jason. Uh, thanks for thanks for all the good production. So Elon Musk released these Twitter files, so-called, and it was he gave them to Matt Taibbi, who's a sort of independent journalist, and and it, it was quite damning stuff for Twitter. It was nothing we didn't suspect, but it was very good to get receipts, as they say. And so one of the worst ones was that Kayleigh McEnany, who was White House press secretary at the time, had attempted to share a piece from the New York Post that discussed Hunter Biden's laptop, the dodgy laptop. And Twitter had taken it down and the DNC, had, well, I think the DNC contacted him over James Woods and told him to take some James Woods stuff down. I don't think the DNC actually contacted him on, on this. But Twitter had just taken it down and they cited hacked materials. And then it turned out, because it wasn't hacked materials, they were basically looking for something in their terms of service to justify taking it down. And they're all scrambling. And then the emails started pinging around the company saying, are you sure we're okay on this? And even a, a Democrat at one point, a, a woman from the Democrats actually messaged him and said, you know, is this not a speech issue? And they didn't even really know what she was talking about. They're so indoctrinated into their own nonsense that they were like, no, it, you know, these are our terms and this is where it reached something. And she's like, no, no, I mean in terms of free speech, like in America. And they just didn't grasp it. And so it was incredibly damning. And it's even arguably election interference because had people known about the Hunter Biden laptop, there is evidence that a certain percentage would have shifted away from Joe Biden to Donald Trump and we could even have a different president. Any thoughts on that, Toby? Yeah, so um, my turn to play devil's advocate. So there were, there were um, <laughs> the liberal media went completely bananas about this and I, uh, I it, it was sort of ignored in the new york times and the washington post and on cnn and msnbc i mean they just didn't cover the story but all their kind of journalists on twitter kind of uh, uh, ridiculed matt taibbi for uh, becoming you know musk's bitch um and so, so so there were sort of three main criticisms of it the first one was you know if Musk genuinely thinks he has um, an important story here, which reflects on the integrity of the 2020 presidential election, then why is he giving it to uh, a mere substacker? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, why isn't he giving it to the New York Times and meeting with you know the New York Times political team? Um, uh, uh, and there was criticism of Matt too for kind of agreeing to be kind of Musk's conduit, and the implication was that uh, he wasn't doing proper diligence of this story because it was being fed to him. So he was sort of compromised. His ethics, his integrity was compromised. That was, I thought, pretty weak. And Musk clearly wants can you news? He wants. Um, Twitter to be a platform on which people can break news. So, so you can sort of see why he did that. And I think Matt Taibbi's, you know, a great journalist, and I subscribe to his Substack newsletter. And um, and and in any event, when he actually did his Twitter thread, he was actually pretty scrupulous and forensic, and didn't seemingly do the bidding of Musk. He just reported on the story that Musk had given him. So the second criticism was that, um, well, we knew all this anyway. You know, what's the big deal? This isn't news. You're, you're presenting this as some earth-shattering scoop. But we all know that Twitter sat on the Hunter Biden laptop story and, you know, banned the New York Post, you know, for the duration of the presidential election. So what? nothing new here, nothing to see. Move on. Uh, I think that there's a grain of truth in that. Uh, but still, I thought it was, you know, there were details that we didn't know. And we didn't know the extent of the collusion between the Biden campaign and, um, you know, senior executives at Twitter uh, to suppress a story they thought was going to be damaging to Biden's 
prospects in the election. And the third line of criticism is that Musk himself slightly overclaimed for this story, claiming that what was revealed was a breach of the First Amendment and was a kind of, I mean, it was perhaps unconstitutional and it did perhaps undermine the integrity of the presidential election. But I don't think it was a First Amendment breach because at that time, Biden's team were not government officials. They were just, you know, a political team. Um, had, had it been the state colluding with Twitter to suppress, you know, content of democratic importance on the eve of a presidential election, that would have been a First Amendment story. But but that isn't what happened. Mm. Well, to come back on some of those, it was interesting, Matt Taibbi addressed that. The the big claim was that he's doing PR for the richest man on earth. That was the big, yeah. You're, basically what you're talking about, that's the verbatim quote. Then he replied, he said, looking forward to going through all the tweets complaining about PR for the richest man on earth and seeing how many of them have run stories for anonymous sources at the FBI, CIA, Pentagon, White House, etc. So some irony there. But bit of water battery really, there in that, in, that, in that response. But yeah, a good response. Yeah, <laughs> I don't mind water battery. So, well, the other thing, yeah, I think you may be right about Musk. He may have, uh, have, have extrapolated too much from that and, and, and made a questionable claim there. But it might be because there is more on the way. So it might be that Musk has seen other things. And he's conflating his yeah. he's probably seen a lot more stuff and he probably knows you know that accusation that breaches the first amendment so perhaps we'll find some stuff that does musk went on a brilliant twitter space all sorts of famous people on this twitter space and he said things like he eventually said that he's not suicidal so if, if anything happens it's not real which is funny that he has to say that but also quite dark <laughs> but that's that's where we are what did you think to trump's sort of response to this that got him in a lot of trouble where people said he didn't care about the constitution I'll just read out his truth on Truth Social. So Trump got wind of the Twitter files, it seems, and wrote, so with the revelation of massive and widespread fraud and deception, block caps, in working closely with big tech companies, the DNC and the Democrat Party, do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner? Or do you have a new election? A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations and articles even those found in the Constitution. Our great founders, in very commas, bizarrely, did not want and would not condone false and fraudulent elections. So people said, well, Trump doesn't care about the Constitution. And I was perhaps defending Trump a bit, but I said, look, the founders, in very commas, was bizarre. It's just a weird Trumpism. He obviously respects the founders. And he basically is saying, you've broken the rules, you've broken the Constitution. So now everything's off the table and we have to you know, undo this. And people said he was just referring to the election fraud, but he wasn't. He clearly says they're closely with big tech companies, the DNC. He's clearly thinking of the, the Twitter files. And he's sort of, but, but do you think Trump was rightly criticized because it was sounding like he doesn't care about the constitution? Well, I think it's, it's um, I think the problem with Trump um, and uh, his line about the 2020 presidential election is that I don't think the evidence that, you know, that, that there was widespread electoral fraud stacks up uh, it sounds like you know the bleatings of a of a sore loser i mean we could disagree about that and and i think there is you know there is some evidence of of electoral fraud but not on the kind of scale not 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 on a sufficiently large scale i don't think to change the result of the election and he's been saying this now for so long and he's tried several times to prove this case in the courts and he's failed at every turn and i don't think that's because you know the judicial process is corrupt. I just think there was insufficient evidence for him to make any of those claims stick or his team make any of those claims stick. Um, so I sort of now don't really listen very carefully when when Trump 
talks about this or when his supporters talk about this. Uh, you know, I don't think the steel was, you know, an out and out fabrication. It's not a conspiracy theory for made out of whole cloth. I think there are, you know, there are some things about that election which do bear looking at again. But um, I think they've made far too much of it and, and, and as a result discredited themselves. Um, I think the broader point is that, you know, who could argue with with Trump with, with 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 Elon Musk's point, which is that Twitter in its previous incarnation before I took over was acting as a political combatant, as a partisan rather than, you know, the keeper of the ring. And if Twitter is going to have any credibility as a digital town square, um, uh, then it can't do that. It has to remain politically neutral, and particularly in these huge, important electoral contests. And, you know, pointing out just how unneutral Twitter was, whilst not really being completely transparent about that fact, um, I think is a devastating critique of Twitter in its previous incarnation. But he could have made that point in a much more professional way, which would have helped him in the kind of PR war to defend what he wants to do at Twitter. But instead, he did it in this slightly sophomoric, trolling way, which just kind of, uh, you know, provides his enemies with ammunition. I mean, of course, there are going to be yeah, most people who work for the Washington Post and the New York Times and the mainstream legacy media in America are not going to come around to Trump. And it's all in the context of a very polarized, acrimonious debate. But, you know, there are some reasonable people in the middle, I think, who he could bring with him. And he needs to bring with him if he's going to make Twitter a success, which depend, you know, if it's going to be successful, it depends upon lots of people paying whatever it is, $7 a month for a blue tick. You know, he's sort of antagonizing lots of potential customers there by going about the prosecution of the previous regime in this slightly sophomoric, infantile way. I mean, it's as though he's, he can't, he's sort of become a culture warrior. And that's the kind of spirit in which he's prosecuting this battle. And I'm not sure that's doing him any favours or is going to help him win, ultimately, though it's very entertaining to watch. Yeah, I mean, there's that quote about Trump supporters, Trump supporters take him literally, seriously, but not literally, sorry. That's how I always feel with Trump. Yeah. That, uh, and you're sort of saying it's frustrating that he couldn't just stick to the actual, the actual case, which is that they sort of, they did interfere in the election via manipulation of media and big tech and so on rather than go with the actual voting machines and all that is that what you'd say yeah i, d I don't think that um i mean the way the way trump tells it and the way you know people who believe the election was stolen tell that story it's as though there was a you know deep state coordinated conspiracy um to uh, misrepresent exactly how people had voted down mm. to you know um organized systematic manipulation of the voting machines and i don't i think that that's that's far-fetched and impossible. okay i 100% think it was stolen but i also <laughs> but i also think it might be smart to focus on the provable part so i sort of half agree with with with, with you there um i do think i mean you've got to look at florida desantis and rubio and people like that everyone won big in florida because they'd adjusted the election rules whereas arizona with all these dodgy machines and all this carry late loss so i think they Republicans have to focus on that. But it's not just, you know, whether it's fixed. It's also this absentee ballots, the way the Dems start accepting huge numbers of rejected ballots. There's ballot harvesting. They, they, they've got to look at the way election. I think the next election is going to be not so much about the candidates, but about who can 
best rig the election system in their favor. That, that's my take. Maybe that's too cynical. Maybe it's conspiratorial. I don't know. That's where I am on that. So, but we've done loads on that. So do you want to move on to the Royals and or post Royals in some cases? We've got this Harry and Meghan Netflix scandal. I mean, you want to talk about this. This is more your thing, perhaps, because I just can't stand these two and just don't, I don't have that much interest. But I did watch the trailer and it is quite amusing because this is this trailer that says when Megan first came over, she was this rock star. They got Piers Morgan saying she was like a rock star. They show all the great warm reception she had. And then it goes, and then everything changed. And like music drops and everything changes. And then someone comes in and says, it's racism, it's hatred. And it's like, if everything changed, she didn't just change race. What changed is we learned what she's like as a person. And yeah. we realized she was horrible and everyone changed their mind. <laughs> It says that, that right? it says that yeah that's right I mean it's sort of I mean of course we haven't seen the documentary yet so maybe we're reading too much into it and maybe they weren't very carefully maybe the trailers were kind of you got the impression that the trailers were kind of rushed out in the wake of the lady hussy scandal to cash in on another kind of scandal involving racism engulfing the royal family as well as you know William and Kate's tour um it, it sort of somehow made it a kind of combustible news story so you can imagine you know um the the marketing department of netflix kind of wanting to quickly put out a couple of trailers to capitalize on the fact that the royals were back in the news uh, and there was this sort of racism scandal so maybe we shouldn't read too much into them but yeah it was totally totally incoherent the message was that the brits had turned on megan when the penny dropped that she was african-american or half african-american and that was just completely implausible i mean it's not as though that was entirely hidden uh, from the British public until there was this kind of moment at which point everyone turned when they're oh my god she's actually half black I'm a racist so I better say something mean about her now I mean it was just, that's just ludicrous as you say what changed was um, that it began to dawn on people that uh, she was actually a bit of a self-seeking narcissistic fortune hunting you know horror story um uh, but yeah you know, i think i'm gonna force myself to watch at least one episode of the documentary series just to just just so we can talk about it um in our in our next uh, episode of the weekly skeptic yeah fair enough i mean i don't know if i will or not i mean i've actually cancelled netflix as well so i might not be able to but i mean look royals are or anyone of, of note has been treated badly by the british press i mean you only have to look at diana Princess Diana literally hounded to death by the media. It doesn't really get any worse than that. And obviously they like to build people up and knock them down and build them up. This is what our press do. So there is an element, if the press have attacked her, it may not just be her obnoxious personality, there is that. It may just be that's what our press do. And I would also, though if I was going to be sympathetic, I'd also say, of course, the royal family, the politics of the royal family, I'm sure is very tricky to negotiate, especially as an outsider, perhaps even more difficult if you're from America or whatever, and you're not really used to that world. And I, I wouldn't be able to do it just as, you know, a normal person from a cosmetic. Imagine me trying to work out the, the, I can't, you know, I can't even understand what posh people are on about yeah. most of the time. So what would I do? So I can understand that part, but it doesn't mean it's racism. Yeah, totally. Um, the Rolf, I mean, you know, the tabloid press, which is what we're really talking about here, um, has always been, you know, pretty horrible to members of the royal family as you say it has favor it has favorites then it goes off them it turns on them um and if they don't cooperate they give them a harder and harder time and they don't respect their privacy and they invent stories about them to sell books and newspapers and the rest of it um uh, so you know the idea that she got it particularly badly 
because she's a tiny, weeny, teeny little bit black is just preposterous. I mean, I remember um, for for You magazine, when I was sort of starting out in journalism, um, I did a story which involved going on a book tour with James Whittaker, then the um, Daily Mirror's royal correspondent and the doyen of royal correspondents, billed as, in the mirror, the man who really knows the royals. And he once he, he was famous also for being called the Big Fat Red Tomato because that was Fergie's nickname for him when they when, when she and Andrew went skiing, I think, in Verbier, he would he would appear on the ski slopes just looking like a big fat red tomato in his red one piece all out of breath and red faced. Anyway, so I went on this US tour to promote his book. And his book was all about Camilla and how Camilla had managed to supplant the Princess of Wales as, you know, the Prince Charles's favorite. Um, and, uh, and, and he would say, you know, I saw him say to American television interviewer after interviewer, well, the reason Charles really likes Camilla is because she's got really bad BO. She's got a really bad hygiene problem. And my God, you can smell her halfway across the room. I mean, birds fall out of the trees when she walks down the street. Couldn't have been more unpleasant. Clearly, completely made up. You never hear a squeak out of Camilla about the treatment she got. I think she got it far worse than Meghan. I mean, you know, um, uh, it's just, I think you just, it comes with the territory. If you're marrying into the royal family, you have to be unbelievably stupid, even more stupid than I think Meghan is, uh, to think that you're going to have an easy ride and you're not going to have to worry about tabloids making stuff up up about you or paparazzi following you around trying to photograph you on holiday. I mean, it's just preposterous that this, 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 this came as a complete shock to her. And the reason is it's the reason they turned on her is because she's a little bit black. I mean, it's so ludicrous. And I, and I don't think many people do take it seriously. I think my worry is that in America, people do take it seriously. People think that, you know, um, uh, the Royal family is institutionally racist because it's British after all, and all the Brits are racist, you know, even though, their problem is obviously far greater than ours. Anyway, so that that annoys me. But I think I think for the most part, I think people have seen through her, and I think people are going to laugh at this Netflix documentary. Yeah, I'm a bit puzzled about why Charles would like someone because they have bo. I didn't quite get that, but it, but it was a good. Well, that's what they're uh, like. These roles, they got funny habits. They're not like you and me, Nick. Uh, they, they're a little bit eccentric on that score, but yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's the upper classes for you <laughs> I see, I get it I think I agree with everything you said about Megan there but yeah, the annoying thing I've heard is that they're winning the battle in America they're winning in America, what does that mean? I suppose America's always wanted their own sort of uh, sat crap royal family so maybe Harry and Megan can be their kind of version of the royal family but yeah, she obviously exploited it and got what she wanted out of it but obviously she's got some things she didn't want out of it oh well, that's Harry and Megan dealt with do you want to do our advert, Toby? Yeah, let's do our ad. So this is from our our only sponsor, Thor Holt. So Thor says, I've thought of collecting whiskey, but I always drink everything I buy, no matter how collectible. The solution, I'm investing in a distillery. What's special about this project? Non-woke, financially trustworthy, business-savvy management, which previously built a brand to a six-figure exit, strong whiskey story, and a renowned head distiller, and investments are sought, that is, Thor is seeking investments on behalf of this new distillery uh, from £2,000 upwards with larger sums qualifying for SEIS relief. So the government effectively pays you to invest. 
My point, says Thor, in talking about whiskey, is that as your executive coach or non-executive director, I'll bring not just a performance boost to your business, I'll also share my trusted network with you. That is, if you hire Thor to be your executive coach or Ned, uh, he will put these amazing opportunities your way. He goes on, connect today and you could still join our pre-Christmas coffee club Zoom, where you'll hear the story of cl- of a client who sold his business for a billion dollars and hear the lessons he learned in the process, which were applicable to any sized business. You can contact me, that's Thor, not me. You can contact Thor at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Thorholt, all one word, T-H-O-R-H-O-L-T. And he says, Merry Christmas to all Weekly Skeptic listeners. And then he adds this, P.S. Nick, I've sent a bottle of whiskey to you in the post, Toby. If if Nick would like one, let me have his address. <laughs> so I'm going to send oh, wow. him um, my mother-in-law's address and pretend it's you and then get two <laughs> bottles of whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think I can drink whiskey. I mean, I think it would destroy me. We, my dad could never drink whiskey. There's a, it seems to be a genetic thing. I remember my dad... We were on a holiday once, and my dad got roped into drinking whiskey with some Scottish people. And uh, the next day, I just remember him, <laughs> he was sat up in his bed with sunglasses on, just repeatedly saying, Jesus Christ, for about <laughs> two hours. And obviously, sorry for the blasphemy, guys, but, you know, he was just repeatedly saying, you know, you know when you're younger, and you <laughs> strange memory of your dad with no shirt on, with, like, weird, sort of, like, I think it was skiing sunglasses on, just repeatedly saying that for about for ages. And I, and I just thought, never drink whiskey, Nick. Yeah. So um, maybe maybe you should send it to Toby. I, some of my most memorable hangovers have been after drinking too much whiskey. Um, yeah, it does. it's like being kicked in the head by a donkey. Um, but, uh, yeah, worth it. Yeah, maybe I could sell it on. Uh, thanks, Thor. Um, so, and thanks for the, the sponsorship. I mean, if anyone else wants to sponsor, send uh, Toby a bottle of whiskey and we'll stick it on. Um, I think that's how it works. Okay, well, now let's go to Will Jones for our roundup of the week's top stories. So I'm here with our editor, Mr. Will Jones, Dr. Will Jones. How dare I? He has a PhD. And we've got some cracking stories. Well, also really depressing story, depending on how you look at it. Firstly, Witty and Valance are back, and they're admitting that lockdowns caused a prolonged period of excess deaths, or they're kind of admitting it, or are they, Will? Oh, well, they're definitely admitting it. They're saying that uh, protect the NHS, the aim to protect the NHS, who has led to what they say is a prolonged period of excess deaths, primarily from heart problems and cancer. Despite admitting this, we uh, we received no apology, Um, There is no warning that maybe this wasn't the best idea. Maybe it shouldn't be done in the future. No lessons being learned um, and certainly no mention of the cause that will not be named of uh, of mysterious deaths. So uh, so pretty pretty disappointing, but um, nonetheless, a frank admission that this major policy of protect the NHS has caused some serious collateral problems. All right. Well, at least they've admitted that. Let's do this one. COVID lasts for days on food. So we were all told that surfaces were a big problem. You could get COVID off anything. Then we were told you couldn't. It was airborne. But now it's back again. Yeah. So the Food Standard Agency uh, has in the UK has said that um, they've, they've done a study, a very careful study. They've looked at, they've taken samples from common foods like raspberries and broccoli and cans and, all, and that kind of thing. And they've, and they've importantly, they have bred viral cultures 
from the from the samples. And what that proves, viral cultures, is it proves that the virus on there is infectious because if it can grow in the lab, then in principle it can grow in a human. And so that shows that it remained infectious, it grew viral cultures uh, for up to a week, for days on end. And so that shows that the fomites, as they're called, from surfaces, from foods, from things you put in your mouth, things you eat, is a way of the virus uh, spreading. As you say, we had um, we, we had dismissed that. We thought that it was primarily airborne, um, and it does still obviously look very much um, that it is an airborne virus, uh, but it appears that it uh, gets around in other ways as well, which may explain why some of its symptoms are gastro, uh, affect your stomach, make you feel sick. Importantly, and the Food Standards Agency doesn't uh, note this, but importantly, it is another reason why masks will completely fail to protect you from the virus if you are if you if anything if it's on surfaces and it, on your fingers and it's and you on the things you eat then obviously uh sticking a mask on your gob is not going to do anything so i feel vindicated in my hatred of masks and my refusal to wear them but then i also feel my relentless hand washing may not have been enough Although, yeah, I only got COVID in 2022, arguably. And that might not have even been it, but I might be special. Maybe, maybe that was why you, you you went for so long without it. Yeah, it could be. Or it could just be very, very special. Um, let's do this story. Britain didn't need boosters, says Sir John Bell. Another one I feel vindicated on. Yeah, so Professor Sir John Bell from Oxford University, uh, Boris Johnson's testing czar, man on the uh, vaccine task force, uh, has said that in his view, the UK never needed boosters, that the first, that the primary course, the first two doses were enough in his view to prevent the serious disease and that there's uh, no real evidence that the boosters are doing anything to uh, prevent transmission, at least, he says, after 70 days. He says they only last 70 days. So um, so this is a a, a major intervention. Uh, He even says, he says that the the boosters are are probably a safe bet, he says, for the elderly. Uh, Doesn't even commit to that. But for everybody else, he is really quite down on them. And in fact, Kate Bingham, the head of the Vaccine Task Force, giving evidence to the same House of Commons uh, committee, which is doing an inquiry of its own, also said that the vaccines uh, that she was key in uh, bringing to uh, into use uh, were not good enough. She said that she said they were not good enough, um, and she refers to their effectiveness, their durability. These two don't really mention safety, but you kind of have to read that, and it is, it is frustrating they don't mention safety. Uh, but I, I do think there's a subtext there that all is not right in in the vaccine. with the vaccines Mm, indeed and another one on on the topic of things that we knew we were right about a german autopsy report has revealed that sudden deaths were in fact due to the vaccines absolutely yes a major new german autopsy report from the university hospital at uh, heidelberg uh, has found that in three cases the the vaccine was likely the the sole cause of the of, of mysterious uh, deaths at home people dying suddenly and in two other cases it was pro- um, it was possibly uh, the cause and uh, these are cases where the people had no underlying health conditions so no other possible or plausible reason uh, that could have caused it and they looked at the heart and they found that it had suffered an autoimmune attack the white blood cells the lymphocytes were there uh, attacking the heart causing the myocarditis the inflammation um, and therefore causing a mysterious unexpected sudden uh, death and so they also looked at so they looked at those were five uh, autopsies they looked at 35 in total 
um, and they found that in 10 of those 35, there was another more likely reason for the person's death. Um, And in five of them, they thought that it was uh, likely um, or possibly the vaccine. And then in another 20, they uh, they basically remained uncommitted. But most of those were also from heart deaths and heart problems. But because they had underlying uh, serious conditions, they didn't commit either way. Uh, but in um, in correspondence with uh, one of the lead authors, he said that the vaccine may well have been involved in those as well. Um, and so this is um, so this is only the first and second doses. It's only from 2021. It's not looking at boosters. Um, it's only looking the all these people died within within days of the of the vaccine. So it's not looking at anything that are weeks or months later. So it's not looking at any of the questions that we've been looking at of the of the elevated excess deaths since late 2021. So it's not answering those questions. But what it is showing is that the vaccines uh, can and do cause sudden unexpected deaths in otherwise healthy people just simply because of um, them causing an autoimmune attack um, on the heart. Mm. So yeah, um, very very significant um, confirming this. Doesn't tell us the rate, unfortunately. Doesn't tell us how often this happens. um, But uh, yeah, very, very important. And I understand Bill Clinton has managed to get COVID despite being jabbed up to the gills. Yes, uh, he has been boosted and he has been jabbed, but he has COVID um, anyway. And uh, he tweeted that he is very grateful uh, that his jabs have kept it mild. <laughs> he has no proof, of course, that he would it would have been any anything other than that. But um, but he is nonetheless uh, very grateful. And that was cue lots of memes on the internet and social media about about people who are very grateful for their vaccines, which did not protect them from getting the disease, <laughs> that they were supposed to be uh, 95 100% uh, effective at preventing. Yeah, such a normie article of faith that. Let's end on this shocker of the climate lockdowns in Oxfordshire. We all knew climate lockdowns were coming. Those of us who follow these kind of things made this prediction, and now it's actually happening. There's this bizarre trial in Oxfordshire County Council where you'll be sort of trapped in parts of the city and not allowed to drive to other parts or only a certain amount of times per year, etc. What are your thoughts, Will? Yeah, this was coming, wasn't it? Uh, since the lockdowns for the for COVID, uh, the the obvious next big, big emergency we were going to have to have radical draconian interventions for was climate. And here we go, Oxford, Oxfordshire County Council blazing a trail here and uh, saying that uh, from 2024, uh, people are going to be given uh, little little zones in their county, um, which w- where they have to stay with their cars and can only leave uh, for up to a hundred days a year. So for more than two thirds of the year, they have to they have to remain. Uh, they have to keep their cars in their little their little zones, and uh, and in order to leave at all, uh, they need the permission. They need to register their car and get permission from the Oxfordshire Communist Party. Sorry, the Oxfordshire County Council to um, let them to let them out and uh, to tell them they they're allowed to do that, and then they will be banned and they'll be fined if they go out for for more than that. So yeah, here here we go. I I can't see it surviving. Um, I hope it's not going to survive. I hope there's going to be outcry. Um, and I hope at any rate that it's going to be seriously off-putting for people staying and living in and staying living in that um, in that county. But but who knows? Yeah, I can only find it on one website, and I even wondered, is it actually happening? Why is this not a bigger story? So no one's really talking about it, but they're kind of sneaking it in there, aren't they? They're just, just trying it in Oxfordshire. We'll just try it out there, and we won't, the media won't talk about it, and they'll just sneak it in, and before you know it, you're trapped in your little corner of the city, eating bugs. Am I right? 
Yeah, lots of bugs. Um, I haven't. I don't think they've quite launched that part of the plan yet, but I'm sure it's coming. Um, yeah, it was actually a story from October, uh, but it's resurfaced this uh, this week, um, and it's good. Um, it's good that it has because we need to keep being reminded that these kinds of ludicrous um, plots are afoot um, by our our elites who want to tell us how to live. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll look forward to more climate lockdown news in the future. And uh, those are our stories. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Nick. And now we'll return to the me and Toby bit of the podcast where my sound was very bad this week. I'm sorry about that, guys. It wasn't really my fault. My settings looked right, but then in another part of the uh, app, my settings were wrong and I was just messed with by the computer. So sorry about that, but hopefully you'll stick with it. Thanks. We haven't done enough controversial topics today, Toby, so I think we should move on to the uh, the end of England as we've known it. And we've had the census figures, and I believe it was one of the main findings was that white British people have become a minority in, I believe it was London, Manchester and Birmingham. I haven't checked that recently, but I think that's correct. And I think London, it was down to 36%. We also had the, the finding that Christians have become a minority in the country and of course, that's not necessarily to do with immigration and so on. It, it, it's largely to do with people just becoming atheists and agnostic and so on. Uh, but there was there's, this has been in the air lately. And then Andrew Sullivan, I think he's your mate, wrote a very interesting piece about it that kind of annoyed me at times because he, he made a few claims in it. He said that this wasn't a deliberate change to the country. But I, I think it probably was because we had Andrew Nether famously saying that he wanted to the left wanted to rub the right's noses in diversity. Immigration went up massively from 1997 when Blair got in. And what I've noticed, and it's, it's really not a racial thing, there, there may be a Venn diagram involving race, but we all know there are plenty of English people who are not white, for example, like Calvin Robinson, whoever you want to cite, we can cite millions of people. And then, of course, there are white people who are not English, which would be all the French and German people living in London, for, for example. So there is a, a feeling that with this radical amount of immigration, that even very normal, very nice people, they're not racist, they're not right-wing even necessarily, are all saying something has been lost, we may have lost our country. And those people I know have a very bad feeling about this. They may not admit to it, but they have a bad feeling of despair about this, really. And I even put out a tweet, I just thought, well, let's just put it out there, where I'd seen a comment on Lotus Eaters where someone said, I'm honestly kind of in mourning right now, mourning for my country, for my people, for my culture and my heritage, all of which I have discovered are terminally ill and are going to endure a slow, miserable death over the coming decades. Except it's almost worse than that because I'm ordered to celebrate the diagnosis. I think it says diagnosis, it would be diagnosis, or would it be seized because he's saying it's multiple things. Anyway, I said, this is exactly how I and loads of others I speak to feel. I have a sick feeling in my gut about the loss of my home. It's not about race because we all know there are many non-white English people and white non-English people. But it is about England, which feels lost forever. I was going to say is lost forever, but someone said I should say feels lost forever. But that's how I feel. And Andrew Sullivan wrote this piece. And sorry to go on, but I'll just end on this, where he covered this. And it had the bizarre, although he basically was saying it's it's a bit of a problem. There is some regret. There is some concern. The numbers are massive. It's a huge change. He said it wasn't deliberate. He cited Philip Larkin. I mean, I think it was deliberate. And then, then he had his friends, and this is the most annoying bit of the article, is him quoting his friends. He said, some of my friends I saw last week love this, this being the sort of massive demographic change. And, and he quotes, I cannot tell you how happy it makes me, one told me, that I can go around London and never hear English spoken. And that was to me the most bizarre, because what country would you, 
what who else would it, would you apply that to did you go to lisbon and say oh, it's so great there's no portuguese being spoken here. i mean either they're english people who are suicidal and self-loathing or they're not english and they're just celebrating the death of a people and their removal from their own capital city so i just don't see why this is a good thing well i think i think that my position is different to yours my worry not worry worry is the wrong word but why i find it i suppose um hard to uh, sympathize too deeply with people like you who feel your home is um, lost to you is I think it depends upon uh, an illusion. I think you imagined that there was this kind of static Shangri-La sometimes invoked in poetry and often when people talk about their kind of idealized vision of England they're talking about you know a kind of vision of a pre-industrial bucolic kind of um, pastoral um, merry England but, but whenever people complain whether it's about the impact of the industrial revolution or the impact of you know immigration in the post-war period they seem to be appealing to nostalgically looking back at a, a, an almost wholly imaginary um, sort of static permanent place called England which is now lost to us uh, when that that place has never really existed. It's always been in a state of flux. Um, there's always been a huge amount of upheaval. This isn't the first wave of migrants to come to Britain. We had, you know, the Romans and then the Vikings and then the Normans. Uh, I mean, you know, let, let's not exaggerate the impact of, you know, mass migration uh, in the 60s. Uh, well, from the 60s onwards, uh, in, in, in sort of successive waves. And of course, that has dramatically changed the kind of ethnic composition of the country. But I, I don't feel as though there is this kind of, I don't feel as though there was some sort of permanent home uh, with, with, with some static fixed features that has now been, you know, permanently taken away from us there's never been anything like that i mean and, and and i'm not sure that the england you know of the 1950s pre the windrush generation um was such a marvelous place i mean i'm sure there were uh, yeah of course there are some costs associated with mass migration but there are also many benefits and i'm not sure that you or i even you would have been happier um in kind of uh living in England in the 1940s. I mean, it looked like a pretty grey and miserable place and not just because of rationing. You know, I mean, the food back then was was pretty poor. You know, if, if, if it was it was lion, go to a lion's coffee house or, you know, a wimpy bar, um, maybe, maybe, maybe a spaghetti house. I mean, I can even remember, you know, just how grim England was back in the 1970s when I was a schoolboy. And you know, if you if you if you go down any high street um, uh, in any major town or city in England now, the the range of choices available to you, particularly when it comes to food, um, but nightlife, um, you know, uh, it, 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 it's not necessarily a worse place, I don't think. Well, okay, I'm going to rebut some of your points and agree with some. When you said it was, I can't remember if you said illusion or delusion, but I I kind of accept that to an extent. Carl Benjamin has talked about this a lot, and if you go back. Even if you read old documents and old poems and accounts and so on, you find there is always this Anglo-Saxon nostalgia for an earlier time. No matter how early you go, there seems to always be this belief that there was an even earlier time when things were sort of halcyon days or whatever. So I accept that point to some degree. The point is where you're completely wrong, unfortunately, is the idea that we've had 
all these waves. I mean, it reminds me of those people that mentioned the Huguenots. And, you know, there was about 10 of them. And you compare it to the numbers now, and the numbers is just radically, radically different. We've had some waves of immigration, obviously, but just nothing comparable to the, the last few decades. It's just the scale of it. And when we talk about this, it's not something I've ever thought about until recently. You know, it's not like I was going around going, oh, immigrants, you know, just not who I am. But when it's when it's on that scale where obviously there's loads of people, as again, I say it's not really about race because there's loads of people you go, yeah, they're obviously English. You don't even think about it. But if someone doesn't speak English and, you know, has a set of values completely antithetical to English values and often in many cases we find actively hates England, then of course, they're not English. So, you know, there's a question of who is English and there's a certain gray area, but there's plenty of people you can quickly definitely say they're not English and it's not probably going to work out that well. And multiculturalism is not going to work out that well. So look, the 80s were fairly grim as well. So I understand that. And, and Sullivan says in the piece that he'd much rather live in London of 2021 than 1971. Uh, I wonder why it says 21, uh, not 22. But um, anyway, I understand the point. But, you know, there's a level, isn't there? And I think everyone liked the wind rush and all that. I think no one had a problem with that. There's this, it's a question of scale. Now, am I being a hypocrite? Because I don't even have children. So what is this feeling? You know, what is this feeling? Lots of people have it, I've spoken to. They're like, what is the future of England going to be? What are my kids going to grow up in? And like, I don't have kids, so it must be more abstract than that. But what about their kids? Perhaps it's just an emotion. Perhaps it's a feeling. Perhaps it is just a, a nostalgia, as you say. But then, when lastly, when because I've waffled a bit there, when Savage Javid said, so what? to this question in that kind of arrogant way. I thought it was completely wrong because he was dismissing this legitimate concern of, of many constituents and of millions of people across the country. So at very least, you have to address the concern, which politicians have never managed to do. There's always been this tension between the people's concern about this on a gut level versus politicians' high-handed contempt. I guess my libertarian centrist position <laughs> is that um, I, think, I think you're right that when people like Sajid Javid say, so what? They are um, neglecting the costs of mass migration and the transformation of our society that's taken place in a very short period of time. And I agree, it has been on a different scale to previous waves of migration. Um, and I think that, you know, and of course, there are costs. People do feel the country uh, is no longer theirs. They feel that um, they no longer know who their neighbours are. They can't necessarily trust their neighbours. There's been a cost in terms of social solidarity. Uh, they feel that, you know, they've paid into a welfare pot and people who haven't paid into it are taking out of it. Um, and they and they and they also, you know, they also think that it's making them harder to access public services, get their child into the school of their first choice, uh, get a, have to wait too long to get seen in A&E and all the rest of it. Um, and, and I think they, you know, they, they, they do resent the kind of aggressive policing of um, uh, any criticism, any dissent from the idea that multiculturalism is just an unqualified good. Um, uh, but I also think that people on your side of the debate um, overestimate the costs. If the Sajid Javids of this world overestimate the benefits and underestimate the costs, I think you probably underestimate the benefits and overestimate the costs. And um, I think one of the interesting things about um, Britain's experience of migration in the post-war period compared to that of other European countries and also compared to you know America in its 200 plus year history is that we've managed to absorb all these uh, foreign nationals all these migrants um, much more successfully uh, than nearly every other country in the world um, and you know compared to France compared to Spain um, compared to Belgium Britain's kind of multicultural experiment, if you want to call it that, has been 
a huge success. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but if you saw this story, but when um, I think when Morocco, they beat a big team in this tournament. Um, uh, uh, and um, it was Belgium, I think. Yeah, I think they beat Belgium. And um, and there were, as a result, all the North African migrants living in Belgium, um, whether first or second generation, um, uh, went out and rioted. Yeah, they started setting fire to cars, smashing up shops, uh, pelting the police with missiles because Morocco had beaten Belgium. Now, that doesn't happen in Britain. You know, in France, every inner city is essentially, um, you know, a, a riotous landscape every Friday and Saturday night, virtually. Um, you know, it's just become a way of life in Scotland. When it happens here, it's completely anomalous. You know, we freak out um, because it only happens once every 20 years or so. It's like that every night in most Central European, most European cities. Um, so I think that, you know, we ought to, we ought to celebrate the fact that um, we have managed to adapt to this very rapid change. Of course, there's been a price to pay and some people are suffering as a consequence and it's suffering in a kind of intangible way, which people often don't see. And if they do see it, they undervalue it. Um, but nonetheless, it's also been in many respects a great success. And I, I sort of feel proud about that fact. Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, we'll see in the future if we become like those countries. I mean, obviously, a lot of it as well is to do with, with Western or in this case, English birth rates, which, which you know, are too low. We've got that idea that we shouldn't have children. We've got the cult of abortion and all this kind of thing. So, but yeah, let's see. I mean, maybe I can put my argument more coherently in a, in a Substack article. I sort of feel like we're American Indians, where we're being, remember when the American Indians were wiped out? They did, everyone was thought it was just great. It was, it was manifest destiny. It was amazing. And then only decades later or many years later, then they get some, some social housing. I feel like uh, that'll be us at the moment. We're being, we're being sort of taken out and we were being told it's amazing and we have to celebrate it. Well, I don't, yeah, this idea that we're being taken out and that there's a degree <laughs> of kind of deliberation behind it, um, I think that's, uh, you know, the, the, I guess the great replacement conspiracy theory. Um, I, 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 think, I think insofar as, you know, it was a deliberate um, policy pursued by successive post-war governments, I think it, was, it wasn't motivated by a desire to kind of decimate the kind of indigenous white British population. It was a kind of... Um, mercenary economic calculation. As you say, um, the birth rate amongst the indigenous white British population uh, has been falling. And so um, uh, if, if, if that's not going to have an impact on GDP, um, you know, uh, if we're not going to have um, a labor shortage, um, given how much we depend upon service industries, um, we have to import labor from overseas and i think that that, that interesting that came up in um, you know there was that kind of uh, treasury dossier brandished by george osborne during the um eu referendum um in which he said um if we leave the eu and we reduce migration from within the eu to britain um we're going to grow less quickly than if we remain and the reason for that was purely because when he drilled down into the detail of that dossier um he thought the uh, that, that even though the population was going to increase it was going to increase by less than if we remained in the eu and free movement continued um and that would have that would have meant gdp grew less quickly um but you know 
uh, GDP per capita would have actually improved. Um, uh, so it was a sort of silly argument. But I do think that po- you know politicians care deeply about um, GDP continuing to grow. They regard their electoral fortunes as being contingent on that. And that's why they've been quite relaxed about mass migration and haven't really made any concerted efforts to control it. Uh, but I don't think I don't think it's it, it, I don't think it, there's a motive beyond that. I think to, to claim yeah people often think well Tony Blair oversaw waves of mass migration and made it easier to come here and um, you know became more integrated in the EU to make it because um, new arrivals were more likely to vote Labour and it was part of this kind of political conspiracy. But I think that's pretty far fetched and it's not as if you know conservative governments have done any better at controlling migration than Labour governments. No, well, it may be simply economic, but it may be that the the you know the politicians and their mates benefit from immigration. They're not the ones who are being outcompeted on wages, and it may also be that yeah they want to get the stats up, get the GDP up, but that doesn't take into account the individual experience of a person who their life has been damaged. But even if the GDP goes up as a whole, because there's the archetypal twelve people living in a room, whatever, on a low wage. But look, okay, we well, well just lastly, I mean, I'll just say I th- I've started to think it's a kind of I don't know if it's a laffer curve, if, if that's the right phrase, a kind of horseshoe on the uh, birth rate question of, of sort of, you, you know, people on people, I suppose, on the who have who are less economically developed, or whatever, tend to have a lot of children. Then there's a sort of middle class midwit type person in the, in the middle saying, oh, I don't want children and I'm worried about the environment. I'll have one point something children. Then at the top end, it goes back to the high IQ Elon Musk people who have realized they want to have about 20 children because actually birth rates are too low. And we're not going to be able to man our societies. So that's my theory on that. We can get into that another day. I think the question is, it's like, do you think England has a culture and, and does it deserve to exist? Because many people think England, there's no such thing as English culture, or they just actively despise it. But it'd be interesting to hear, I mean, if people are team Nick or team Toby on that. <laughs> well, I think, it. you know, but if you think about, I mean, isn't it, I mean, that that's always why I've um, had no sympathy with the um, cultural appropriation taboo. Um cultures are never kind of indigenous to one particular place. So the idea that it's wrong for one ethnic group to borrow, take from the culture of another ethnic group just seems to be based on a very simple-minded understanding of what a country's culture is. Um, It's always going to have different roots. It's always going to be something of a polyglot and multicultural in origin and so forth. And it's, I always thought that the people who complain about cultural appropriation and think that, you know, only black people can have braids are kind of um, appealing to this kind of um, uh, ethno-nationalist understanding of what culture is, which is just at odds with what it really is. I mean, if you think about what do we think of as kind of, you know, um, uh, some of the most kind of successful, most celebrated forms of British culture over the past, you know, 50 years. Well, I think of the Rolling Stones, but the Rolling Stones clearly aren't kind of purely an expression of pure indigenous British culture. I mean, they've taken a lot of kind of blues music and African-American music and a lot of other influences too. Um, And, uh, you know, our genius is to take these different influences and give them a particular kind of English twist and turn it into something that we can then export to the rest of the world. But, uh, you know, we don't seem to be punching below our weight on that front. And I think one of the reasons for that is because of, you know, post-war immigration. I think if we hadn't had any, um, English culture would have dwindled to kind of uh, something pretty bland and um, uh, uninteresting by now. Well, there are there are certain tenets of English culture, free speech, our history of civil liberties, and our sort of sense of fairness or fair play. And these things start to become eroded because there's many cultures don't believe in these things. These are actually not the norm. 
So what about things like that? Aren't things like that under threat the more you erode what we might call Englishness? Well, I hope not. And I think that um, I hope those things are robust enough to withstand, um, you know, um, the ethnic composition of um, the nation changing. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think I, I, where I do sympathize with you is 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 I think that um, uh, people who come to our country um, to benefit from our way of life and our prosperity and things like the rule of law and religious tolerance, uh, they have a they should they should then recognize their responsibility to defend those things and uphold them and not challenge them as though you know they can transform our country into a kind of little microcosm of the country they've left for very good reasons. Um, so yeah, I do I do think that. Uh, Perhaps there should be more cultural assimilation. Uh, you know, I believe in. I believe in. Um, I've got no problems with a multi-ethnic Britain, but but some aspects of multiculturalism I do take issue with, and that idea that that we shouldn't prioritise British culture and value our own traditions, our history, our heritage above that of other countries, and expect people who make their lives here to do the same. Of course, I, I, I'm with you there. Okay, well, some agreement there. I think uh, I think Toby probably won the debate just because he's better at arguing, not because he's right. All right, now let's go to everyone's favourite segment. Of course, it's Peak Woke. All right, so as always, I have loads of Peak Wokes. Shall I go first, Toby? Do you have, do you have any burning Peak Wokes you want to... No, you go first. You go first. Okay. Well, there's so many. I mean, there was the um, there was the Disney ride, Splash Mountain, banned for being racist. There was something... I don't even know if this is Peak Woke, but there was a... I think it maybe it's from the previous week as well, but there was a thing saying uh, that in Germany you have to have the vaccine to be allowed to be euthanized. I don't know if that's woke though. There was the civil, no, sorry, the citizens' advice services or bureau, whatever they're called, saying you have to have pronouns, badges now, and you can't misgender someone. And if you do, you have to apologize immediately if they tell you off or if, even if they don't. So that was complete nonsense. There was James Cameron saying that testosterone is a poison you need to get out of your system which was very annoying. When you looked into it, it wasn't quite as bad as you thought. It was just him sort of talking about being a young man and working through that and saying he sees testosterone as a kind of something to work out. He said it wasn't quite as bad as it sounded at first, but it did annoy me. But I think the worst one this week has to be the bizarre revisionism about love, actually. And it does it does uh, continue on from what we were talking about before because Richard Curtis said he was ashamed. He felt stupid about the lack of diversity in Love Actually, this terrible crime, a movie that was out in 2003 when Britain looked at quite differently demographically. So it, it, even just representing the Britain of the time is terrible. You should go, it's like 1984, you know, it's always been the present. You should go back and change everything somehow. And then Jeremy Vine picked up on this and, and Richard Curtis said, thank God society's changed. It was just this bizarre kind of assumption that <laughs> white people are evil. And Jeremy Vine continued this. On Channel 5, he said that there was all these red flags in Love Actually. He said, white people, red flag. Straight people, red flag. He said, they're having a go at people for being chubby. Red flag. It's like, Jeremy, you're a straight, white, thin man. Why do you hate yourself so much? And why is hate speech being allowed on Channel 5? Just this automatic <laughs> assumption that being white is automatically evil. And that's just a normal thing now you can say on Channel 5. So we need to cancel Love Actually because it had straight white people in it. I mean, just if you step back from that, how absolutely mental is that? So that has to be peak work. What do you think? Tom? Yeah, that's so extraordinary that, I mean, you know, I always hope for the day that um, Richard Curtis would renounce the ghastly sentimental dreckfest 
that is love actually but I I hadn't I, I hadn't anticipated this would be what he kind of homed in on as its kind of main shortcoming. Not not the you know not the not the terrible performance of Kira Knightley, um, or any of the kind of ludicrous subplots or the the preposterous idea that, you know, um uh Tony Blair could be played by Hugh Grant. Um but but yeah, but the fact that too had too many white people in it. I mean it's as though you know, he, he's it's exactly what one of the kind of really irritating, progressive, wet male characters would say in love, actually, you know, 19 years later, if you made a sequel, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's like he has he just hasn't changed, uh, which is disappointing. Um, uh, anyway, um, uh, I, on the on the on the James Cameron point about testosterone being a toxin, I mean, I think that's slightly disingenuous of him because, you know, if you look at um, Aliens, if you look at Terminator 2, um, even The Abyss, um, all the female, you know, the, the, he has these kind of alpha females in kind of lead roles. Um, and uh, and what's so appealing about them is that they have a kind of, they've got, you know, testosterone for blood. I mean, you know, if you think of Sigourney Weaver in Aliens saying, get away from her, you bitch you know that couldn't be more of a testosterone fueled statement um ditto with you know the 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 kind of warrior mother in terminator 2 i mean these are women just fizzing with testosterone it's not testosterone he's he objects to it's testosterone when you know in a male body if it's in a female body he's fine with it not just fine with it he gets sexually aroused by it clearly anyway um so i thought that's a bit disingenuous but my peak works are uh, I don't know if you saw. I think you've been you've been um, uh, avoiding watching any of the um, World Cup, and particularly England, on principle. But no, had no you... I've been working too hard. Really, I'm oh, okay. because of work. But I I um I saw the uh, England Senegal match, and there was a wonderful moment at the very beginning when all the England players took the knee, but the Senegalese players remained upright, um, which just seemed to sum up just what a pointless empty gesture it is um even worse i think than um all the england players taking the knee while all the usa players remain standing upright anyway um so that was one and then there was um i don't know if you saw but eddie izzard uh, failed in his attempt to get selected as the labor candidate for sheffield central and the male um uh uh, reported this with the headline Eddie Izzard fails in her bid to become an MP as Labour members opt against choosing comic as their election candidate in Sheffield Central so um, kind of disappointing that the male is using Eddie Izzard's preferred gender pronouns um, and um, but I think my peak woke this week Nick um, is I don't know if you saw but um, Sight and Sound have just published a new poll they do this every 20 years or so they, they they have a poll of all their critics uh, to nominate you know the top 100 films ever made and until now the top films have been films like citizen kane and um vertigo um but and we have a new winner so according to uh sight and sounds critics the best film ever made um is is a film called i don't know if i'm pronouncing this correctly it's a french film called Jean Dillemont, uh, 23 Quad de Commerce, 
1080 Brussels. And that's literally got like eight or nine words in the title. Um, and it's, it's, it's about this housewife who also works as a prostitute. It was made in 1975 by a director called Chantel Ackerman. And um, it, 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 it's literally, I, I haven't actually seen it, but people who have tell me that it's like, it's three hours of kind of watching this woman do the washing up and look after her kids, punctuated by the occasional bout of kind of loveless sex as a client arrives and then departs. It's a kind of ultra kind of social realism slice of like makes makes Mike Lee look like, you know, Busby Berkeley. I mean, it's um, it, it's it's just uh, it looks terrible, unwatchably bad. But of course, they had to make it their number one best film ever made because they needed to have a woman as the director winning that accolade and it certainly it certainly attracted attention to the sight and sound poll which i guess is the entire point of doing it so maybe you know they should get points for coming up with something so utterly absurd that it's been widely written about and sight and sound is now on the lips of every film goer in the country but um yeah i thought that was like the, the idea that this film is better than vertigo or you know uh, the searchers um, or Citizen Kane is clearly just ridiculous. Anyway, I love the search as well. Interesting, Toby. As much as I hate women, I'm not sure if that one wins peak woke. Eddie Izzard is interesting. The male have gone extremely far left. They, they've accepted that, um, you know, they've accepted the Eddie Izzard is a woman. They've accepted in general the sort of they them language, which I find disappointing. Your Senegal point, I think you're on stronger territory with England kneeling for the USA because. If it's, the Senegal players are basically all black, right? So England, in a way, should kneel to them, but then in in the logic of, of wokeness. But in the USA was a particularly absurd one where George Floyd was their problem and we're the ones kneeling and they didn't. That was absolutely absurd. Yeah. And that was last week. I agree, so, yeah. So I'm not but sure sp- you went... Go on. Yeah, but I... I it, it, when they... When, when I don't think... I think you're assuming that when the England players take the knee, they're atoning for Britain's history of racism and colonialism but i thought it was more the players expressing their solidarity with the victims of racism so uh, which is why you know the black players kneel alongside the white players and in fact in a lot of cases i think within football teams it's driven by the black players um uh, and the white players want to do it out of solidarity with the black players to say i know you've experienced racism and i take your claims of having experienced racism seriously. And that's why they do it, sort of team solidarity. But so in the, on that basis, couldn't the Senegalese players do it too? They're not supposed to be atoning for it, just expressing their solidarities with, with other victims, and in some cases, fellow victims. I see what you mean. I don't see it as post-colonial. I see it as the why it started, BLM. They're kneeling in solidarity with George Floyd because of and Black Lives Matter in general. That's why it started. They, it may have evolved since then. But that's why it's absurd that the USA would kneel and we would because yeah. it specifically comes from a, U- a, a, a death in the USA about their policing system and their racial tensions that are not ours. So, but yeah, I, I see your point. I think uh, Love actually wins it this week personally. Yeah, I think it probably does. And that means I get peak woke and you get weak woke. <laughs> I've won again, guys. Uh, <laughs> all right. It's, we've done a, quite a lot of time there to make up for a short show last week, which was Toby's fault. But we, won't, we won't go back into that. <laughs> Um, you say won't, won't go into that. You've mentioned it about a dozen times. I'm sorry, sorry. about that. Never that again. must be a habit from my dad. Um, he never left anything like. Um, let's just quickly read one of your lovely reviews, which we appreciate so much. Leave a five star review, guys, if you get a chance, or any of the apps. This one's on Apple. 
and they've said, excellent, thank you. This is my favourite podcast, lighthearted but serious with a great format. After two years of the mainstream media and society trying to make me feel like an outsider, I relish every minute of each episode. Thank you for helping me regain my sanity. I know I'm not alone, but there was a grim period where it certainly felt like that. Nick Dixon is charming and funny. Sorry to have to read this bit, guys. He has a lightness of touch, which is a pleasure to hear. I've long admired Toby Young. Together, they make a warm and knowledgeable friendship. Thank you for doing this podcast. Whether me and Toby are friends is the question, because he often doesn't invite me to big big events. But very, very nice of you, and we thank you for that. And we're so glad that you feel less alone because of the podcast, because we're certainly not doing it for any financial reasons. So um, anything to add, Toby? No, that's nice. There's a sort of running theme here, which is that... You are warm, witty, brilliant, companionable, <laughs> and I'm none of those things, but they admire me. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm also the one selecting and reading the reviews. So if you, oh, if you found true. the reviews, they I'll might try. have a slightly different tone. Uh, maybe I'll have a look. Um, but uh, yeah, all I wanted to add this week, Nick, was um, uh, we've, we've, we've just put on um, the Daily Skeptic website, um, we've put a link to um, a pro forma email that people can send to their MP on the Free Speech Union website um, to urge their MP to um, vote for what we're calling the PayPal Amendment. So Sally Ann Hart MP has proposed an amendment to the financial services and markets bill which is being read in the house of commons there's a reading of it in the house of commons tomorrow um and the amendment would make it unlawful for big payment processes like paypal to withhold or withdraw service from customers on purely political grounds so if you care about that if you think that there's a danger that as we move towards a cashless society and central bank digital currencies are introduced that we're going to see a Chinese-style social credit system coming into force in this country, please do use this form to contact your MP to urge them to support this amendment to make that kind of deplatforming, that kind of censorship unlawful. Okay, so do that. Obviously, go to dailyskeptic.org. And most importantly, go to nickdixon.substack.com, where I've made all my articles free in a Black Friday sale that I've yet to undo because I've forgotten to. So go and get my free article and my forthcoming article about why England is lost forever, nickdixon.substack.com. And we thank you for listening. Um, We'll see you again next week. And of course, stay skeptical.